Need an extra hand with dinner? Just ask your connected home device to fill your pasta pot, and Delta Faucet Voice IQ technology will fill it with the perfect amount of water. Visit deltafaucet.com slash voice IQ to discover more. Welcome to episode 17 of The Nth Dimension, the first episode of the decade. The Nth Dimension is a podcast where we untangle the tangled web of systemic causes of economic, social, and political issues, and perhaps stretch the seams at the seams of public discourse. The title and theme for today's episode has been borrowed by my guest, uh, Rima Burns-McGown, who is the member of Provincial Parliament for Beaches East York as a representative of the Ontario New Democrats Party. She's also a member of the Standing Committee on the Legislative Assembly and the official opposition critic for poverty and homelessness. So I've borrowed today's episode's uh, theme from her. It's called Illuminating Poverty. Um, she recently started a project titled Illuminating Poverty to highlight the different faces um, that exist of poverty and the systems that plunge people into it. Rima, I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh my goodness. Thank you for having me. It's really an honor to be here at the beginning of the decade. Beginning of the decade, 2020. Yeah. It's what everyone's been talking about, the apocalyptic. we can see clearly now. Uh, oh, can we? <laughs> Bad pun, sorry. <laughs> love it, love it, love it. Um, so before I ask you to hop in and talk to us about your project, um, poverty is something that necessarily is not associated with Canada, a, a more developed you know, G7 industrialized, industrialized nation. Um, but because people really like to hang on to facts and statistics because they're more tangible. Um, let me put this out there that in 2017, 9.5% of the population in Canada um, was in poverty. So let's bring you in and why don't you tell us about the project that you started and why? So here's the thing, I'm actually an accidental politician. Prior to this, I was an academic and um, teaching diaspora studies at U of T. And what interests me, it was my former students who actually asked me to run and they said, you have like a really interesting analysis and a really great way of, of figuring out what are the systems are that, that need to be fixed. Um, so that's the lens that I tend to bring. Um, and so with, I'm really enjoying having this portfolio of poverty and homelessness because it is a thematic one. And it allows me to think about what is it that causes people to be pushed into poverty and um, that makes it hard for them to get out. And um, so I started asking that question uh, as, as my approach in. And um, the thing that interests me is that a lot of folks on the more conservative side of the spectrum said to me, well, you know, you're gonna be dealing with a lot of people who've just made a lot of bad choices. And that struck me as a really problematic lens through which to see this. Yeah, makes me wanna roll my eyes. It really does, right? So I was like, no, that's not what's going on. Let's figure out what's going on here. And of course, there are a series of systems that end up um, colliding and collaborating and then end up pushing people into poverty and making it hard for them to get out. And that's what I wanna explore. I, I love I love that um, how you set that up because I think conventionally people think that addiction is the the gateway into poverty that sort of like plunges you into that vicious black hole. Um, 
but Stephen Hawking did say that black holes may not be the prison that we think so there is a way out but <laughs> but unconventionally so I think there are like vol I mean you know life can be a series of um traumatic events and you you don't know what might push you into um it, you know might push you into poverty so what what do you think are the systems that that create for people to fall out almost so let me give you a sense of why i put what the project is if that's okay of and course. Like why i put that together and then i can talk about the kinds of things that people have already been telling me so we sort of get some of the preliminary like evidence out there that's excellent. so what i wanted to do was start this project called illuminating poverty and homelessness to figure out what are the systemic issues what are the holistic things that people find themselves battling that made it hard for, that pushed them into poverty or made it hard for them to get out and so this project is to create uh, a website which we have it's sort of created but not yet public and to ask folks who are willing to share their stories to tell us whatever it is that they want to say about the the barriers the things that have push them there that why do you think you're struggling with poverty or did struggle with poverty because some folks have managed to pull themselves out of it so it can be present or past and um what are the what are the issues that that pushed you into it what are the issues that made it hard for you to get out and people can tell their story any way they want um so they can use their real name uh and it can be a traditional interview with a photograph or they might um, not choose to use their name. They might choose to use a pseudonym or not use any name at all. Um, it doesn't have to be an interview. It can be a poem or a photograph or a rap uh, or a dance yeah. or a painting. It can be a anything. TikTok video. A, a TikTok <laughs> video, yes, or a series of them, whatever they would like. And um, and I, and and it's gotten a really enthusiastic response thus far, and I'm hoping that that will continue to grow. Um, because what I want is it for it to become it to become absolutely impossible for anybody in any political party to ignore what is coming out. I want it to be something that people across the political spectrum understand um, and then develop systemic policy responses to. Okay. So what's coming out? So of course, there's a lot of the systemic forms of racism. Mm. So it could be anti-indigeneity, uh, histories of colonization um, and residential schools and intergenerational trauma and reconciliation that has not happened. Um, we know, for instance, that 90% of the Indigenous uh, population of Toronto is living below the poverty line. 90%. It's wow. an enormously high statistic. And it shouldn't be that way. And it's it's not because there is something about being Indigenous that makes somebody choose these things. It's about a, a series of histories of um, Canadian uh, col colonial actions uh, that are ongoing and then the failure to fix them. Um, and we all know what, the, what those are. But the failure to fix them is profoundly important and sits on the level, in fact, of every, of every government, including the provincial one. Um, of course, anti-Black racism is an enormous uh, issue. And a recent study showed that Black families are twice as likely as white ones to experience food mm. insecurity, even if folks are employed and own their own homes. 
because of the way that anti-black racism works. Um, we also know that- Is it possible for you to explain that just a little bit more? Like, of course. even if someone, like you said, has employment and um, is not vulnerable in, in, in the conventional sense of the word, then even then, why are they more- Because it's taking more of their income to put the roof over their heads. And they're probably, their, their employment is a fraction, tends to be right, a fraction of, of that of white families. So even when you keep the roof over, you might have to spend a disproportionate amount of your income keeping that roof over your head. Um, and that means that you have less money for food. Right, of course. So um, other issues are other forms of discrimination. So the kind of... Uh, discrimination that trans people face, for instance, um, queer phobia more generally. Um, then in addition to that, uh, folks who've experienced trauma and then have not had adequate mental health supports, who then turn to forms of substances to self-medicate, um, that becomes its own issue. And then on top of that, the stigma around um, mental health and addictions. Mm. People who've had injuries um, and can't work. Um, I have spoken to many people who um, were doing really well until they were injured on the job and then sometimes have been unable to get adequate compensation for any number of reasons, find themselves both in enormous pain, which opens the door to or reliance on pain medication, potentially opioids and all of those sorts mm. of issues, but also um, not being able to work uh, and the slide into poverty that comes that way. Um, then there's issues of just having a disability and particularly um, when you transition to um, uh, ODSP as, as an adult, uh, if you don't have adequate family support, mm. that can be an entryway into poverty. So many people do not understand that people are often one injury, one serious illness, um, one, one thing, can one traumatic yeah. event that can push them into something. Yeah. The way, the way I see it, um, you know, when, when, when you were talking about the systems, the different systems that can plunge people into poverty, I, I see two things, um, two aspects to this. One is that obviously we have to alleviate those who are already um, living below the so-called poverty, poverty line, um, which correct me if I'm wrong, the Canadian government only established a poverty line in 2018, um, which I think shines a sort of light on how seriously the government was taking this issue. Um, and then the second aspect I see is that we need to prop up systems to prevent people from falling into this, you know, vicious um, dark hole um, so that, let's say, if a traumatic incident does happen to you, then you have the support and systems in place that, that help you come out. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that poverty is enormously expensive for a society. Yeah. It, it, uh, another recent study found that it costs Ontario between 28 and $33 billion a year 
So the way that that gets measured is twofold um, in terms of quote unquote lost productivity, um, but also so people who are are enmeshed in deep poverty uh, and homelessness who aren't living their lives to their own potential. So not to make people just tools mm. in a capitalist machine, but at one level, poverty is, some people think about poverty as um, food banks and homeless mm. shelters, but it's so much more. Anything that prevents somebody from living their full potential is something that's impoverishing them, right? I love that you said that because I actually, can Can I ask you to elaborate a bit more on this? Because, um, you know, for like, I think people have this strict image of what poverty looks like. And that is, uh, that may be homelessness, a homeless person on the streets, or it's something that you see, you know, from countries in, let's say, parts of Africa or Asia, you know, I think so that I think people have a very um, two dimensional image of poverty. So I love what you said that not being able to live up to your potential. Can you elaborate more for people who may be living in a bubble or people who just don't know what it looks like? Yeah, it's so it's so important. So if you the Canadian government has now created this um, ministry for middle class life or however they phrase it. And uh, the new middle class minister was having trouble <laughs> okay. um, defining it. But effectively, she said, you know, well, when you're middle class, it's when you can afford stuff. So presumably, that might mean you might be able to afford lessons for your kids so that they can explore whatever instrument they might want to to play or if they're interested in hockey they might be able to play that if they're because hockey is expensive all that equipment is expensive if they if they want to do art that you can put them into art it means being able to to buy not only the lessons themselves but the time and the space um, mm. so maybe you have a car, which means you can get home in time to take your kids to these extracurriculars, um, as opposed to having to spend two hours on the bus each way to a minimum wage job. And so th that means your kids are going to have these opportunities so that as they grow up, they can say, what, how do I imagine my life in the world? You know, what do I, what are the, all of the range of things that I could be in the world? As opposed to if you're struggling to put food on the table and just to keep a roof over your head um, and you have um, a, a family that's underhoused, say, which which means that there are too many people in too few rooms because that's what you can afford. Um, when you are in a very crowded condition or when you don't have access to the kinds of lessons that the middle class mm. kids might have access to your horizons tend mm. to be smaller the way that you imagine yourself in the world may tend to be smaller you may not understand your that you can do anything that gets compounded if you're going to school and being told by teachers that you can never be anything in the world, mm. which happens to a lot of of course racialized kids right? let me ask you this let me pose a question that critics that a critic might say. Um, what you said reminded me, and I've referred to this many times on this podcast, the Maslow's triangle of hierarchy for needs. So do you think that it is, how much is it the government's responsibility to provide you towards 
to take you towards self-actualization. So um, I know that the way, or correct me if I'm wrong, actually, um, the way Canada measures poverty is through a basket of goods. And if you can afford those basket of goods, then you're living above the poverty line and the cost for that for that basket of goods varies from province to province. Um, so people have argued that, for, for instance, dental uh, care should be included in that basket of goods or uh, for, for, or pharma, pharmaceutical care, which it currently is not, I believe. So, you know, some will say those are the things that people need to help them live a life of dignity. Um, so now you're now from what I gather, you're saying that we should extend the the and a life of dignity is how people the ability to uh, to achieve your potential. So how far do you think it is the government's role to help you reach self-actualization, which is the tip of Maslow's triangle? So, so just, there's so many, there's so many questions that get raised yes. by your question. So let me try and go with some of them. So um, absolutely, people need to have basic stuff covered. I mean, housing should be viewed as a, as a human right, yeah. um, not not a want to or nice to, but an actual human right. And I do believe that it is government's responsibility to ensure that everybody is housed and to do what needs to be done to ensure that everybody is housed. And by the way, um, homelessness is skyrocketing. Mm -hmm. um, and in the city of Toronto, it has pretty much doubled over the last two, three years. So that's a really yeah, it's a big number. Horrifying. Let me just put it. Thank you for saying that. Let me just put a statistic out there. According to um, government data, there are 150,000 people homeless every day in Canada. Mm -hmm. yeah. And over 9,000 in Toronto. And that's just the wow. visible homeless. No, that's not people who are precariously housed or the hidden homeless or so on and so forth. So definitely there's no question that um, things like pharmacare and dental care should absolutely be like OHIP, things that you um should be able to to get just by dint of being a human and partly that goes back to the question of the cost of poverty because in addition to the fact that it's about lost potential it's also about the fact that poverty costs the mm. government in terms of people being in hospitals people ending up in prison people ending up in the criminal justice system. These things are expensive. And keeping somebody in a hospital who could have been kept out of a hospital if you had adequate supports in place in the first place, that is a very, very expensive way of going about dealing with poverty. Um, and so I, there's a wonderful memoir out um, that's on the bestseller list, and I think everybody should read it. It's uh, by a fellow named Jesse Thistle, who's Métis, and um, it's called From the Ashes, and it's his memoir of having grown up in a family that was devastated by this colonial um, system and all of the ways in which it's hurt Indigenous people, including Métis mm. uh, folks, and um, and the kinds of struggles that he went through, the sorts of trauma that his parents had, um, which definitely affected him, and his ending up uh, experiencing homelessness for ten years. Wow. And in the and it's 
it's had a um, happy ending. Jesse is, he wrote this book. Yeah. He teaches at York. He's now developed um, uh, an indigenous, a definition of indigenous homelessness, which goes way beyond the idea of just a built structure mm. to questions of community and, um, and family and, Sounds amazing. and spiritual traditions and so on and so forth. It's a wonderful book. But one of the things that he said to me when we were in conversation was that one year in his life when he was in jail and in hospital and sort of cycling between the two of them because he was in the very depths of this systemic mall that he couldn't get out was way more expensive to the province of Ontario than providing him with the adequate bridging, therapy, counseling, housing and support that he mm. needed to get out of it. So it's way more expensive to have people in poverty than it is to have them supported in such a way that they don't get there or that they can get out. And that's a really, I think, a profound of lesson. Of course. I'm, I totally agree with you, but I feel that human humans are very short-term thinkers, and I think politicians play to that. So how would you, like, how, how can we convince, you know, during election time when politicians are just trying to, like, get power, you know, they're obviously doing everything they can to get more votes, and they're like, oh, you know, we're going to set up these systems so that in the next 20 years you reap the benefits. But that those are important systems that take time to be set up, but, it'll ta it, but these are things that take time in the long run, but they're trying to get votes now. You know, so I feel like we're constantly caught in this battle um, with career politicians of wanting to get power for the next four years. And they they forget about the things that they need to talk about for the long run that will essentially be good for for the country. It's such an important question. Um, I'm always this is goes back to my being an accidental politician <laughs> on top of um, of being at heart an academic I'm also an introvert so I find myself like the unicorn I mean what am I doing even in this job it's a it's um it's I often feel very like I, I wasn't made for this at all um and one of the and I read a wonderful another wonderful book uh this past summer called quiet um the power of introverts in a in a world that won't stop talking and i am sorry but i can't remember the name of the author right now her name is susan something or other somebody have the title of the book have the title of the book and one of the points that she makes is that it's actually really important for there to be introvert politicians why because we're the ones who say whoa we need to think long term and one of the people she points to is Al Gore, who was like one of the first people who really pointed to the climate emergency long before everybody else was squawking about it. And it was like, and he's a famous introvert, evidently. But we need to think about these things differently. And I would argue we need a different conversation on poverty and homelessness. Mm -hmm. We need to stop thinking about it in terms of how are we just going to get through the next cold snap and how, mm. or the next hot snap or the next, like how are it's, we have to stop with the band-aids because the band-aids aren't working. We need to think long-term. We need to think deeper. It is about, yes, it's about adequate social services. It's about making sure that people have enough to make rent and pay their medication and get um, their teeth fixed because if they don't, take their medication, they end up in the hospital and you can't kick them out of the hospital 
And then other people who come in, there aren't enough beds and people end up in closets in the hallway. Mm. I mean, that's just what, what happens, right? So it's again, it goes back to, it just, it makes, it's better economics to make sure that you're thinking about the systems and you're thinking about prevention and you don't get, you know, people don't end up in the hospital in the first place. So how do you do that? So how do you back up and how do you have this, this, um, this systems view? What you can't do is just say these simplistic things like the Ford conservatives keep saying the best social program is a job no i'm rolling my eyes <laughs> no that's just that's ridiculous many people are struggling to keep roofs over their heads and they're working three or four jobs and you know so. i'm glad i'm glad you said that because um i feel that you know if i look at my generation or i look at my peers um you know, now more than ever, young Canadians are living longer with their parents because housing and rent is unaffordable. Uh, more of us are in in precarious contract jobs. Um, so th there is a lot of like, there's a lot of sense of vulnerability in the air among people who are not poor or at risk of being poor. Having said that, I feel that there are more of us at risk of poverty now more than ever. Um, you know, if I, if I, if I look at myself as an independent journalist, you know, if tomorrow I don't get two projects, then, you know, automatically unable to, you know, pay for food, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, what are your thoughts about that? Where there is a whole cohort of people, the, the largest voting block now young, Canadians, millennials, at risk of not being able to provide for themselves sufficiently and go on creating a life of dignity. Yeah, I think it's a real problem. And I think it's a real concern. And I hope that those young millennials um, take very seriously the power that they have, um, the voting power they have, the power they have of coming together and making their voices heard. I mean, again, it, it starts with understanding how complex these issues are. So one of the reasons we don't have affordable, one of the reasons this is happening is because we have a, an, a, an affordable housing problem. We have it throughout the country and in fact, in many cities in the world. And one of the reasons that that is happening is not just the usual demand and supply thing of years past mm. um, and not, not, not only because it's been years and years and years since governments uh, stopped investing in social housing and co-ops and things that otherwise made housing more affordable, but also because since two that largely since 2008, um, large multinational investment companies have been using housing as investment opportunities. Mm -hmm. So when you stop seeing, when you don't see housing as something that is there for people to live in. And instead you start seeing it as an investment opportunity, like a gold mine mm. or, an, uh, or, or an oil well, then all of a sudden there's, there's something skewing the Definitely. what's out there and how people relate to it. And that is a problem that governments have not mm. wrestled with sufficiently. It's something that I'm 
pushing and starting to talk about increasingly and rattling chains and saying this is a thing that needs to be dealt with. But I want to go back to your point about millennials. It's so important. I've really realized since um, in the 18 months since getting elected, how powerful people's voices are. We have seen over and over again, for instance, the provincial government um, go out and enact laws without doing sufficient research and making the terrible policies without thinking through the consequences or consulting adequately with the people who know what's going on. And then they've had to walk them back. And they walk, they've had to walk them back or in the pros or they're in the process of saying, oops, we're going to mm. need to think more about that in part because of the loud voices of people who come together and organize. So recognize it's so important to recognize that you actually can impact the government. You can make them rethink things. You can make them think differently about things. The yeah. other piece is that I think we really need to think very, very seriously about basic income, right? This is the thing that- Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, we had this, do you wanna say something? No, no, before? yes. So we had this, there was a pilot project in place which Doug Ford promised he would not touch. And it was one of the first things he did when he got into power. It was one of the promises he broke like right away was to, to end the, the, um, the basic income pilot project, which is infuriating on so many levels, not the least of which is that when you have a research project um, that is doing well, you don't go and destroy it partway mm. through. Um, it, that just... <laughs> Yes. Yes. Infuriating saying. to say the least. Infuriating to say the least. And on top of that, when you talk to the folks who were actually receiving the basic income, you could see how mm. back to the idea of fulfillment, right? Like right to Maslow's, it wasn't an enormous amount of money, but it was enough that you had people for the first saying for the first time in their lives, they were actually thinking beyond how do I just make sure that I, there's a roof over my head and food on the table? How do I make sure that I can start to live a more fulfilled life? In fact, there, there has been uh, research done on, because Andrew Yang in the States has been talking a lot about universal basic income. Um, so in one of his um, interviews, he mentioned that there has a lot, there, a lot of research has been done on like he's toying with the idea of giving a thousand dollars every month so twelve thousand over the year um and that people will not just waste this money away you know that it will make them more able to take let's say business risk or go out and set up a project that they haven't that they've been toying with or just like you said look beyond you know putting food shelter over their heads and look beyond just like you know saving themselves and fulfill their potential um so one of the things that i want to ask you off of that is you know when we look at we there's no doubt that capitalism is not any longer working in the ways that it promised us it promised us a free and equal society um and let's face it we're not equal and we're not free um I won't go as far as to say that it hasn't decreased inequality because for some parts of the world that has happened, um, you know, parts of Africa, India, case in point. Um, however, I think industrialized, developed industrialized nations are seeing rising inequality. So, so the system is, is kind of failing us now. Um, so one thing that I want to ask you is, you know, when we, when we look at 
governments and taxes and revenue, they always like, they always go at cutting, let's say income taxes for people in the lower end of the economic uh, spectrum, but that's not going to generate more revenue. So what are your thoughts on, you know, increasing avenues for increased revenue for the government to pump into systems that will allow an equal distribution of potential opportunity. And one of the things that that is being talked a lot about in America is, you know, putting a wealth tax. And I know that the NDP also wanted to do that, put a 1% tax um, on wealthy people be, who are earning beyond a certain, certain point. Can you share your thoughts on that a bit? Yeah. I mean, I think, again, we really do need to, to relook at how our taxation system works all around. Um, I think that, you know, going back to the very basic question of, of capitalism, there, it's not in capitalism's own interest for it to eat its young to the point that the society doesn't work anymore. Mm. And I feel like I love how you said that. that's like, that we're dangerously close to that happening when you have corporate and capitalism is an animal and it is an I animal. It's I an, love how you said that. <laughs> it's a hungry animal. And so when you get to the point that businesses are shoring up profits in order to buy back their own shares in order to make the profits mm. rise, like who who is benefiting from this system? And in a, in, a, in, in a world of housing that's being seen as an extractive industry and um, in increasing um, income inequality where you have haves and have nots and the have nots really have not, um, this just, there's something fundamentally broken here. And there's, and I think that one of the ways to to address it again is that we do need a different conversation. We have to stop talking about people as though they're only taxpayers. Mm. Because sometimes when you say to people who are struggling, well, you know, we're going to come in and cut your taxes. And they're like, yay, I'll have more money to pay for stuff. But then they also say, oh, we're going to have to cut those services as well. So all of a sudden, the things you're going to have to to buy are more than the money that you're saving from the tax cuts we've made. So that's got to be a conversation that is had openly. Mm -hmm. And we at the same time have to have a conversation in which we're saying to corporations and individuals who have outsized wealth, you want to live in a society that feels good. Mm -hmm. um, and not just because you can put up higher walls around your house and your wealth and your whatever resources, but a society that it feels good for you and your family and your children to move around. In. And if that's going to happen, then everybody needs to invest in it in addition to being able to flourish. And that's, that is a, a conversation that tends not to happen. We tend to say, well, where's the the low income tax state and how that's near us and how do we have to be uh, in range of that so we don't see companies leaving um, and fleeing across the border. It's a more complicated conversation than that. It's a, you know, people want to live and also to have um, to build their companies in places that in societies that function. So how do we do that? And how do we do that together? And those are conversations that that need to happen, I think, in different ways than mm. we've been having them. I think this is the 
ironically, this is the perfect time to be having these conversations again because climate, the climate crisis, you know, dominates everything that we will set out to do. Um, so, I, at the, so I think you're right that we need to start, you know, looking at different ways to have very important conversations. I just want to get your thoughts um, on something before um, before we move on. So Peter Hicks, who has worked um, in policy roles for the government, wrote in an article titled Measure, Measuring Poverty, Let's Get Empirical. So he says that the underlying goal is sometimes a poverty that is, is sometimes cast in terms of reducing intergenerational poverty with each generation leaving behind a better world, a world that is better and more equal than the one they inherited. So According to him, this perspective leads to more long-term thinking by pouring in resources on increasing access to health, education, housing, employment, et cetera. Um, I don't think that we're that this generation, my generation, is living in a world that was better than our parents. Um, in fact, climate change has has you know completely shuffled the entire game. Um, so how? On, on, a, on last notes, how do you think we can have both government and people work together to create healthy conversations on important issues of poverty that that prevent people from falling into into that black hole? So absolutely, I, I think that's such an interesting point. Climate is the ultimate disruptor. And we don't have hundreds of years to pick this out. We have like 11. We have like oh. 11. <laughs> Like, we've got very few. We have to get this figured out and we have to, to completely change the way that we conceive of our relationship with the land and with resources and how we use them. And so it's not just a want to have conversation. It's a need to have conversation. Mm. It's an urgent need to have conversation. And I also love the way it is being driven by young people who are like, excuse me, folks, not we've only, had enough of you. <laughs> we've had enough of you. Not only are you not leaving us all the stuff, uh, but you're actually you've it's not even clear that we'll be able to breathe. Yeah. I love how Greta Thunberg says that I don't want your hope. I want you to be angry. Yeah. I want your anger and I want your action. Yeah. And so I think, though, that it also is an incredible opportunity. Um, I think, so here's the thing that I want, um, in beaches East York, which is the part of the East end that I, um, uh, that I live in and that I represent, um, there have been bursting out all of these little climate hubs. Um, so like lots of them and they come together on Fridays and kind of in keeping with the Fridays for future thing, they come together for a short, but powerful time at the end of the day on a Friday and before people go off to do their evening to say, okay, so what are the actions that we can take? How are we raising awareness? What are we doing? And it's Amazing. happening in parks and in churches and in hockey arenas. And it's like, people coming together to say, we're really annoyed and we're really angry and we need to do something. I want that to spread throughout the city, throughout the province, throughout the country, because that's when governments will stand up and take note when everybody is standing up and saying mm. like, no, you need to be serious and you need to be serious now. And what does that mean? And I think it's an enormous opportunity because as we start to make a serious switch to clean energy and there are jobs to be created in those areas. And maybe we can also think about like, as we're doing that, 
how are we redistributing wealth and pay attention to indigenous cultures, indigenous ways of knowing, indigenous ways of being while we're at it, which means serious reconciliation. Yeah, when you get a bunch of people together in a room from the same neighborhood, it's like, oh, you see that everyone has the same, may have the same issues. And I think that that's an excellent way of sparking conversation at the at the grassroots level. Excellent. Rima, thank you so much for coming to my podcast today. The answer mentioned it was lovely having you. It's been such an honor to be here and I've so enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Rima. That is it for episode 17 of the nth dimension. Please do follow me on Twitter at underscore the nth dimension till next time. Have fun out there with life. Total Wine & More is a wonderland to explore. Thousands of wines and spirits, unexpected pairings and great gifts, low prices and helpful guides. Make the holidays magical at Total Wine & More. Drink responsibly, be 21.